Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, last time we were reminded that God is sovereign, there's no doubt. Hopefully we affirm that and don't uh, need a whole lot of teaching on that, but it's something that we assume and, and believe to be true. And we also learned that we are redeemed to be a community of saints, that we're not just redeemed to live out the gospel on our own or to just live out um, before the face of God in the world as we're called to do, but we're also called to be part of a community. God works in the context of a community, of a church. And so we, we learned last time from Revelation uh, that God not only makes promises, but he's sovereign enough to carry out those promises, and, and he will do so. And so as we heard from John crying because he didn't know if the Lamb of God was able to carry out his redemptive purpose, wasn't able to open the scroll, he was told to stop weeping uh, because God is able and will uh, certainly uh, unseal the seals as we hear and learn from Revelation 6. And so as we consider uh, the nature of the Lord and how he accomplishes his redemption, how do we know uh, that we're guaranteed to enter into heaven, right? I mean, what happens when we die? Obviously, uh, we weren't created to die. That's not how God intended the story to end. Uh, but that's the reality of how it is now. So we know we're redeemed. How do we make that transition from this life to the age to come? Do we sleep? Uh, do we walk uh, into heaven in one level? And, and what does that mean as reformed speak of the intermediate state, and then the full glorification. And so what do those terms mean? So as we consider this, we'll see first that we will be conscious, and secondly, that we will receive the consciousness or the fullness of glory and long for that as we are in heaven. And so let's begin with we will be conscious. The Catechism reminds us that my soul will be taken to Christ after this life. Secondly, my flesh will be reunited with my soul at the glorification or resurrection. And so there's two truths going on here in question answer 57. We know that we will enter into heaven with our souls. We, we will see Christ. We will see glory. And we also know that our souls uh, will be taken uh, and reunited with our body at the end of the age. And so... When we say this, we might say, well, what, what does that mean? Why, why are we making such a big deal of this? Well, clearly we can't say that we will receive the full bliss of heaven when we die uh, because we have to wait for the new heavens, the new earth uh, to come down or the heavens, the new heavens, the new earth come down from heaven, the new Jerusalem as pictured in Revelation, uh, the fullness of the judgment, these sorts of things that transpire. And then we have the resurrection. And, and then in the resurrection, we receive the full glorified body. 
So we can't say that we receive the fullness of heaven. So as Reformed people, we speak of the intermediate state. Now this is different than purgatory. So when Roman Catholics speak of purgatory, purgatory is a place where we go to have the full purification of our souls before we can merit heaven. That's not what we're teaching. Uh, we believe that our souls receive the fullness of what is promised because of what Christ has done. So we're not in the fullness of glory, but we begin to taste glory in terms of what our souls experience, as we will see from Revelation 6. Now, some people speak of uh, the notion of soul sleep. So when we die, our souls just basically go into a coma-like state, and then we wait for the resurrection. Again, this is trying to be sympathetic to understanding the fullness of glory. Uh, the problem with this is that we don't find in Scripture any teaching that our souls just go in a coma-like state. Uh, the Catechism cites a thief on the cross, where Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so uh, our Catechism is saying this is not what Scripture teaches. We don't see this in Scripture. Uh, clearly, we move from this age uh, to experiencing, or at least beginning to experience, the bliss of heaven, even though it's not in the full glorified state in terms of our resurrection body. And so let's go into Revelation 6 and, and, and explore what our catechism is doing here and, and what it's trying to teach us. Now, in terms of Revelation 6, it's important, as I mentioned last time, Revelation 5, verse 4, John weeping loudly. Uh, in other words, this is uncontrollable. And, and it's important for us to understand the setting because when he hears no one can open the scrolls, and unseal the scrolls, that means God is not able to carry out his redemptive purpose. So if God can carry out his redemptive purpose, we go home. I mean, there's really no point in being a church. There's no point in being a Christian because God's promises fall flat. That's why John is weeping. And so I, I don't want to minimize the reality that John grasped the theological implications. If no one can open the scrolls, there is no Christianity. God has failed. And that's why he's basically rebuked and he's commanded, stop crying, you know, knock it off, uh, cut this out is a way of really bringing this into the English. Weep no more because you have to see the full picture. This is where we go into Revelation 6 now after we have the angels of heaven understanding us in terms of our worship, praising God with the angels of heaven being identified with this community, again, wanting to look beyond our immediate here and now and seeing the bigger reality that we're tied to the saints throughout the ages, we're tied to the saints to come, we're tied to the angels in heaven. I mean, this is a rather glorious thing in understanding the, the choir we're singing with, you know, not just with us here and now, but the saints throughout the ages and, and with the angels of heaven. And so when you walk through these scroll or these seals in these scrolls, we find the will of God working out. Now, in terms of uh, the unsealing of these scrolls, the first seal, um, some commentators take this to be Christ. So this first seal would be speaking of Christ uh, doing his work, being raised, um, and, and accomplishing his will. Uh, I side with the commentators. 
with these four living creatures as being four living creatures where the Lord allows them uh, to basically cause mischief, cause havoc, uh, you know, stir, up, stir the pot, stir up agitation, whatever you want to call it in the church, persecution, death, however you, you want to call it, that's what these creatures do. So the first creature, I side with the commentators, uh, that this is a creature that's like Paul speaking of the angels of light. So it's actually those who are opposed to the kingdom, but they disguise themselves as being angels of light. So this is an antichrist figure. So Revelation 19, we have a different setting of the white horse and Christ riding out. Here we have a setting of a white horse, basically a mockery of Christ, disguising himself as being one that, that wants to be sympathetic to the church, disguised as an angel of light, but it's really just seeking to conquer the church of Christ, making war with Christ's church. Uh, so this is not one who's sympathetic at all. We go on to the second one. Uh, we find here with this seal, we have it opened up. Uh, we have another living creature. We have the red horse. And then we have this one that goes out that basically just stirs up uh, havoc in the kingdom. So it's just stirring up empires, uh, uprooting things, just uh, basically just bringing about wars and destruction and Everything that God is not about is what this uh, beast is doing or, or what this uh, rider is doing. The third seal, uh, we have the black horse and we have the scales in the hand. We have the voice of the one who's basically speaking of the wheat and speaking of the oil. Uh, the implication here, we might not fully get this in the English, but this is basically charging an arm and a leg uh, for food. It's basically getting a monopoly using the monopoly to oppress the people and, and setting a huge burden and stirring up uh, manufactured famines, basically making it difficult for an individual uh, to get by. And so it's doing an economic persecution. We have the fourth seal where we have death in Hades. I mean, obviously right there, that's not something that's very positive. We have famine and pestilence. So this is, again, other things that are coming upon the earth uh, to create havoc, to destroy the church, to destroy order, to destroy anything that God is doing in his redemptive purpose. Now, it's important to understand, before we get into uh, the fifth seal, where we have, you know, basically our verses of concern, then when we skip down to verse 12, we have the sixth seal. Obviously, right before the seventh seal, which is the final judgment, the saints entering into the Lord's rest, and there we have the full accomplishment of his redemptive purpose in this cycle of revelation. But the sixth seal is where we have the assurance that while the Lord allows for these four horsemen, if you will, to go out and create this destruction, that this is not outside the Lord's control. So the Lord's allowing them to do this. And basically, this is the Lord saying to Satan, you want to make war? You want to... Uh, discredit who I am. You want to rise up, go ahead, rise up against me, do what you can. But it's the assurance that this is a numbered time. It's not just unlimited havoc that Satan can raise up. There will be judgment. Uh, the kings of this world, the great ones, will be judged. Uh, even the slaves will be judged. There is no hiding from the face of God. And so that's intended here, not to stir up 
uh, concern for us, so to speak. I mean, obviously, we, we, we have that as what I'd say a secondary motivation, that we want to live a good life before the Lord because we don't want to fall into his judgment. But it's intended here as a positive motivation, saying we might look around, we might read the news, we might say, my goodness, what a mess this world is sometimes. What's going on? What's the hope? And here we have the sixth seal, the Lord giving the assurance. This is not the story of world history forever. So now when we look at the sixth seal, and we think about this picture here of this opening and the saints under the altar, we say, okay, so these are saints who have been slain for the word of God. As I mentioned last week, the elders, most likely angels who rule upon the throne. When we see uh, humans in heaven, they're not in their full glory. So here's the souls of the saints. Uh, they've been martyred. As we find they've been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Verse 9. So this is clearly uh, a description of who these individuals are. They are those who have not just died, but they are those who have died a violent death. They have been slain. And they have been slain only because they worship the true living God. Uh, it's a tragedy. And that's the reality of what we have here. And again, we might read this and say, well, what's the point of going on? I mean, if we're just going to to be slain, and we'll get to that in a moment. But right here, the reality is, the Lord doesn't lie to us. I mean, that's something we, we can take from this uh, quite openly, quite transparently. The Lord says, listen, uh, when Christ walked this earth, talked about bearing your cross, this is what it ultimately may come to. It may come to us giving our lives for the nature of the gospel. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to give our lives, or, or we shouldn't try to put ourselves in a place where we become so obnoxious uh, that maybe uh, our martyrdom might be a little bit deserved or, or we may have agitated a little bit to cause that, that that's not the invitation. The reminder here is just following Christ may have a consequence. When we have this picture <coughs> of being slain, this is something that's also used in Revelation. Because we have a praise of God, a praise of Christ where we have in verse 9, notice there the, the chorus of angels joining together, uh, singing praises, and they're praising God because Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain. This is a violent death, and his blood has paid for the ransom. So before we go too far in saying, wow, martyrdom, I don't know if I want to sign up for this, we've got to understand they're, they're being slain is not redemptive in the sense that they're paying for their own sins or that they're here because of their own meritorious accomplishment. They're here because the Lamb of God has been slain and has paid the price for them. But the souls that have been slain, this is basically the spirit that's breathed into man at the creation of man when God creates man, body and soul, pronounces him good. That the actual soul, the essence of the human, is taken to heaven. And so when we say, well, what's the assurance? What's the hope? Well, you think of Stephen facing uh, the angry Jewish mob and they begin to stone him and ultimately stone him to death. He looks into heaven and he sees Christ seated in glory. The assurance is that these saints, or we, will go to heaven. We will begin to taste 
the bliss of heaven under the shepherding care of God. And so the assurance is, as we have these kings mentioned in the opening of the sixth seal, they may not know the, all the saints that they have martyred. Some they may know, some they may uh, have wanted to martyr or, or to kill. But by and large, they probably didn't know all the saints they martyred by name. But we have the assurance that our Lord knows his saints by name. These are the souls that he has called to himself. Now these uh, uh, souls who have been martyred are those who uh, we think in the tradition of Abel, we think of Hebrews 11. They're not named to us, but the reality is the Lord has guarded them and kept them. Now again, we, we may hear this and we may say, well then does that mean in order for us to experience the beginning bliss of heaven in our souls, we need to die this violent death and undergo being slain in order to truly be taken to the side of Christ. Well, we have two examples in Scripture uh, that we also appeal to in our Reformed theology in, in terms of what we teach regarding this intermediate state. We think of the thief on the cross. Now again, I guess that's a violent death, but it's not a violent death in the sense that he's martyred. It's a violent death as a thief on the cross admits, I deserve to be here. Uh, the crimes that I did, this is a worthy consequence of it. And so he rebukes the other thief saying, hey, you know, this, this guy in between us, he doesn't deserve to be here. We do. We've done horrible things. We deserve the crucifixion. So his death is not martyrdom. But when he's on the cross and he turns to Christ, what does Christ say to him in Luke twenty-two forty-three? Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, people who argue soul sleep will say there's a comma after today. If somebody tells you that, there is no comma in the Greek text after today. It's all intended to be taken together. And so when Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise, it's the assurance that his soul will be taken to Christ. I mean, what, what a great comfort. Here's a scoundrel of scoundrels. Is this is not a, a death that Rome handed out lightly. So he's a scoundrel of scoundrels. And yet in this moment, as he turns to Christ, he's taken into heaven uh, with his Savior with an assurance of his redemption. Now another passage we appeal to, showing that it isn't necessarily a violent death, we think of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, Lazarus, not the one who has died, um, and, and, uh, that the Lord weeps over, that, that we read in John's Gospel in John 11, but this is Lazarus the beggar in the parable of Luke 16, 19 through 31. There's a setting there where Christ sets up the paradigm of two extremes. You have a rich man that you would expect to be blessed because he is rich, he is wealthy. Uh, so you would think in terms of a Hebrew mindset, health and wealth gospel, he's blessed, he's got everything right, therefore God's with him, right? And then you have the beggar where he's set up in the extreme where basically the greatest contribution he makes is making air for plants or trees. Uh, really, in terms of human existence and our value of that individual, there's nothing about his life that we would seem worthy of redemption, uh, worthy of attention, worthy of care. And that's the reality of, of how it's presented. In fact, the, door, the dogs lick his sores. He's presented as lower than the dogs, eating the crumbs from the table. And Christ intends these two extremes because you would expect the rich man to go to the side of Abraham 
and Lazarus to experience uh, eternal judgment. But you find that there's a flip. We have Lazarus in his lowly estate exalted to the side of Abraham. So there's a consciousness and glory. Uh, he understands <coughs> that after his death, he's at the side of Abraham, implying that he's beginning to experience the bliss of heaven while the rich man experiences the bliss of hell. Now, the point of those examples is getting back to Revelation 6 here. That while Revelation 6 has a violent death, we have other examples in Scripture where it's not necessarily violent death that guarantees our beginning to taste the blessings of heaven. That when we die, as we are in Christ, we begin to taste in our souls the very bliss of God's redemptive purpose. Just not in the fullness, uh, because we are not there in our resurrected bodies. Now, in terms of people claiming, well, okay, so we can go to heaven, but how conscious are we of, of the progression of time? In other words, if, if we're in heaven, are, are we going to be conscious that uh, there's a future state, that, that there's something beyond this age? This is where we turn again, and we understand uh, what the Catechism is teaching us, and as we look at this, the Catechism wants us to understand uh, that we are conscious of our identity. Uh, we are those who will begin to taste the bliss, and as we begin to taste this bliss, we will be conscious that we will have the fullness of our resurrection body. So we say, okay, well, we understand that's what question answers 57 and 58 are teaching us. How does Revelation teach us? How does the Word of God really lay this out for us? Well, notice that we are invited to hear the souls in heaven. And as the souls are here in heaven, we, we find in verse 10, basically the altar is, is opened up or it's like shoved away a little bit. John's able to look down and, and see the souls of those who are there. And they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so here we have clearly a, a, a consciousness a consciousness that as they're in heaven, they're not in the fullness of heaven. But yet they're in the presence of God, and they're able in their souls to call out to God. And we find that the Lord doesn't dismiss them. The Lord gives them this white robe, which again, the Lord clothing them. We think of Adam and Eve, accident Eden, how the Lord kills an animal, clothes them, uh, certainly with clothing that prepares them to live in a wilderness, thorn, thistle existence, but also clothing that symbolizes the covering of Christ. And that's what's going on here. That this clothing is, is pointing them to the reality, you will have the fullness of glory, uh, you will have the full righteousness of Christ, you will have everything that's laid out and promised to you, you will have this. But the point of that is that they have to wait. Because they're told to rest and wait a little longer. Not to go to sleep, but to wait a little longer. In other words, they're to find their rest. And rest, again, in Scripture can mean sleep, or it can mean resting consciously in the Lord. That's what they're to do. Continually wait upon the Lord in the Lord's timing. Clearly, they weren't waking up from a nap. Clearly, they weren't in a coma-like state. They're conscious of the progression that's going on. And so what are they ultimately asking in terms of what they desire? 
Well, they desire to have their blood avenged. So here, they're understanding that they weren't necessarily deserving of a violent death. They were following the Lord. They professed the Lord, much like we have the record in Hebrews 11, where clearly the Lord knows those who have died and has given their lives, and he knows his people. And so God knows them. As John gets this tour of heaven, he may recognize some of these individuals, may know some of them, may not. We're not told. The intention is to go beyond this immediate context to know that those who were martyred, we can think of Abel being there, the first martyr, all the way up to the last martyr prior to the coming of Christ, whoever that individual is, we don't know. But God does. And so that's the reality of what's going on here. The kings will be dealt with. And so when, when we consider this, this calling out to God, it's important to note they have not lost hope. They're not in heaven saying, okay, our souls are here, but are, are you going to finish what you have started? In other words, are they weeping like John, like we find in Revelation 5 verse 4? No, because they identify who God is. He is sovereign Lord. In other words, you are king of kings, you are Lord of lords. That's what they're identifying him as. He's holy and true. So God's set apart, distinct, and the essence of who God is is truth. So like we heard this morning, when God makes an assertion, he doesn't need to make an oath. He doesn't need to make a covenant. But God goes up and beyond what he's required to do to give us that assurance. And so here they're affirming, you are true, you are righteous, you do everything that is ultimately right. Now, the thing that, that they're having trouble with is they say, how long before you avenge our blood? Now, as we hear that, we might say, well, what, what's going on? If you know, say, some of the interrogation tactics that were used in Russia and, and different places, there are some pretty depraved things that human beings have done to other human beings. Some of the records that have come out when people have interviewed these individuals, they said the worst thing was in the midst of interrogation and an individual was trying to crack you, was wondering if this official would ever be held accountable on one level or another. And then to realize that once you crack, you're just going to be executed anyway, and life's just going to go on as if you didn't exist. And that was a hard thing for them to understand and to come to grips with. And that was something that attributed to their being broken mentally. And so this is a reminder that as Christians, we, we can't think this way. Because even these souls in heaven have a consciousness that the sixth seal will be opened. And so they're saying to the Lord, I understand that you will deal with this injustice. You will deal with it. But, O oh Lord, we want you to deal with this. We want you to bring about the consequence of the actions of what has transpired. Now we hear this declaration of avenge our blood. Some people take and say, aha, see these saints, are, they're not that great. Here they are. They just make it about themselves. But what have they said? They're basing this on the promise of God and who God is. So if we follow Christ, and Christ gives us the assurance that as we follow him, we're going to be vindicated, Right? Now, it's not because of our righteousness, not because of our goodness, not because of things we've done, but because of who Christ is. And as we walk by faith, as we take hold of Christ, we struggle through this age, 
We know that at the end, Christ will, will be faithful to his promise. And so they're not asking for revenge. They're not asking for the same thing to be poured out. But what they're asking for is for the Lord to be consistent with who he is. He is holy. He is true. So, O Lord, if individuals are doing this to other individuals created in your image, how can you go on with this? How, how can this continue to be? How long is this going to exist? It's a lot like what you have with Psalm 82, when the Lord calls the, the kings of the earth and, and calls them to account, says, how long will you rule unjustly? And they're called as part of the council, right? So the council of angels, Isaiah 6, and you have in a Psalm 82, the council here on this earth. And it's the Lord calling them to account. And so the souls of the saints are conscious that the sixth seal has to be opened. And they want the sixth seal to be opened, not just because they want these people who have killed them to be put down, but they want to be brought to glory. They want everything to be made right. They want the Lord to fulfill who he is as being holy and true. Being holy and true means that untruth needs to be put to death. It needs to be destroyed and put down. And so they're saying essentially, Lord, how long until the sixth seal is open? How long until the seventh seal is open? Lord, we want this. Now the Lord's answer may not necessarily be all that encouraging. Because he gives us assurance that it's when the number is complete. Now the number of those who are to be killed, and it also implies a number that the Lord has called to himself. And so this is the answer that the Lord gives. And he's saying to the souls, listen, you, you have to wait. You're going to be conscious of this. But you have to wait until my last person that I have called comes to me the last person fulfills the work that I have set out for them to do, whether it's martyrdom or whatever it may be. And then I will make all things right. And so the Lord also lives up to the reality of what they have praised him with. O sovereign Lord, he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And this is where we understand the magnificence of that sixth seal being opened up. Because you have the souls in heaven calling out to God, the angels praising God, souls in heaven saying, O Lord, we want the fullness of glory. We're conscious it's coming. We want this to come. And then that sixth seal, when you have the, the kings of this earth thinking they can just shoot Christians and persecute and do whatever they want, like fish in a barrel, and there's no consequence, all of a sudden you basically have the uncreation of the world the firmament that's set that basically divides heaven and earth is ripped open and all of a sudden they see the glory of God and they hide. And so it's the assurance that the Lord will bring about his glory. And so this robe that he gives to the saints, we, we can't minimize this. He's saying to them, you will receive the fullness of this clothing. But here's a taste of it. He's not discrediting them. He's not belittling them. He's giving them the assurance, here is a white robe that you are longing for. It's not your glorified body, but here at least is the assurance, the down payment, that you will receive the fullness of glory. So the point there is that the souls, when they go to Christ, 
But when they go to heaven, there is a consciousness. They begin to taste the glory of heaven, or they begin to taste the torments of our eternal punishment. Uh, obviously, we, we don't want to be in the latter. We want to taste the glory and beauty of heaven and the confidence that the Lord will shepherd us from this age to the age to come. This is in conclusion then. How do we know and how does Revelation assure us that God is going to accomplish his will? How do we know that we will ultimately enter into heaven? Well, I, I think it's clear and uh, Reformed uh, theologians point this out. We, we don't have exhaustive evidence in all of Scripture as to how we're exactly transported from this world to the age to come. Uh, because the reality is, if all that stuff was laid out, uh, we probably wouldn't read anything else. That's where we'd be fixated and focused. And, and fundamentally, in terms of Scripture, what, what is it teaching us? Teaching us the certainty of God, teaching us who He is as sovereign, teaching us about the redemptive purposes of Christ, exhorting us to live out our lives out of gratitude as living sacrifices unto him as his redeemed. And we have the assurance that as we, we walk with the eyes of faith, then we're not going to be disappointed. No matter what we face in this life, no matter what we may see in the news, no matter what may discourage us, Revelation is telling us it's all in the sovereign control of God. In our minds, we may think the world's gone crazy, it's gone awry, it's out of his control. The Lord's saying, no, it's all within my sovereign control. Satan will rebel, Satan will undermine, he will send out his satanic army trying to counteract the Lord's army. But the Lord's saying the sixth seal will be open. I will bring about the fullness of redemption. And you can be assured that if you die before the second coming of Christ, that the Lord will take your soul unto himself and you will begin to taste the bliss of heaven. And so the assurance that Revelation is giving us then is that Christ really is sovereign. God really is sovereign. He really will carry out his redemptive purpose. And we can live in the confidence that our Lord will shepherd us and lead us and not even abandon us in our time of death. He is that gracious and glorious of a Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. <laughs>